Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, hi, Leanne. Fantastic to have you on the Arate podcast today. Uh, Just to get started, tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Oh, thanks, Richard. It's great to be on the show. And I'm the CEO of West Gippsland Libraries. Um, And yeah, COVID's been really, I guess, playing to our um, strengths of our journey over the past few years. So uh, it's really exciting to lead our organisation at this time. Oh, that's excellent. And so for people who are unfamiliar, where is West Gippsland? We are in Victoria, so um, eastern side of Victoria, um, but we're the west end of Gippsland. So we're now bordering on the southeastern suburbs. So there's a lot of growth happening in our area. You're bordering on the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. Yes. Right. Yep. Okay. Sure. And so, uh, you know, last year, poor old Melbourne had a pretty tough time with COVID. Were you caught up in all those lockdowns, or did you escape that? Oh, yeah, we, we escaped where I live is just on the border. So we were right. still classed as regional Victoria. Um, but our service providing library services early on in COVID provided some interesting challenges where we had lots of people from metro areas wanting to come to the regional areas to use the service and and that presented challenges from a, a right. COVID perspective. Okay, sure. And so um, uh, give us a sense of the scope of West Gippsland Libraries, how many sites, how many people, etc. Yes, yeah, so we um, span across three regional shires, so 8,000 square kilometres. We are an organisation of 85 people and um, we have serve a community population of 120,000. So mm-hmm. we are in a growth area. Um, mm-hmm. So that uh, one of our shires is growing quite a bit. And um, and we have 13 libraries across, across um, those three shires. And we've done some very different and innovative things in terms of how we can service the needs of our community. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about that. So um, obviously, uh, as you were saying, you know, last year, people being in lockdown and COVID and so on, their ability to, you know, utilise the traditional libraries uh, was dramatically changed. But there's been quite a lot of um, uh, broader innovation in the sector. And, and tell us, you know, what's the world of libraries look like nowadays? Well, it's not just all about books and our growth area is in our programs Mm -hmm. um, and also in our e-resources, which obviously experienced significant growth during COVID for obvious reasons. But just prior to COVID, we um, launched the first 24-7 library in Australia. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, We did a pilot. uh, And whilst we can't offer it at the moment during COVID, um, we will be expanding to offer more 24-7 library services across our network. And what's been really great is that it's um, improved the way people can access our libraries. And I guess concerns initially were people worried that, um, you know, how was the venue going to be treated and people using it at 1am, but we know that that's not how people wanted to use our service. So it um, people come and use it when we're not open on Saturday afternoons or Sundays. And so we know that to accommodate the needs of our community, we want to expand and have 
more 24-7 libraries. So, so that's one of our areas of opportunity over the next few years. Okay, so this is not an online library. This is the actual physical library. Yes, correct? just like a 24-7 gym. Right, okay. Uh, but there are no staff on the premises. Correct. Okay. Uh, so, all right. So uh, I've not been to a, uh, a library, let alone a 24-7 library, uh, <laughs> in a long time. So, uh, so how does it work? So somebody uh, can come in, they can access the books on the shelves, and then they check them out themselves. Yeah, so you have to apply to become, um, to get access to the 24-7 service. Okay. And then you get a swipe card or a fob and you come mm -hmm. and swipe in and um, it recognises that you're there. It, it's certainly modelled off a 24-7 gym. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can come and browse or you can come and use the free Wi-Fi. Okay. Um, you can come and work or study. Um, you can read your magazines or the paper. So all the things that you could do, most of the things that you could do when the library is open and staffed, you can do um, with our 24-7 service. And right. then you, if you want to borrow a book, you use the self-checkout service and mm -hmm. off you go. Okay. So when I was at, uh, at uni, one of the things I loved to use the library for was to have a sleep. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I could I could go in and uh, just pull a, pull a couple of couches together and have a little nap, could I? Uh, well, I guess technically <laughs> some people might choose to do that. We do have um, CCTV, so right. we can monitor and track who comes, okay. when they come, how many people, etc. So, um, and the first one was our pilot. So we we haven't had any incidents. I guess part of leading a transformational change with our organisation has been preparing, I guess, our staff for different scenarios. And in this pilot, I sort of said, well, you know, thing, things could happen. Um, it might not work. And so part of my leadership style is to prepare them for those different mm -hmm. scenarios. And mm -hmm. I was surprised. We haven't had any incidents and I was prepared for at least one. Right. And so this was um, an initiative that you'd seen being done elsewhere in the world or it was... Uh, uh, something that you really led the way with? Well, I guess it comes back to the mandate that the board gave me when they employed me. So mm -hmm. I didn't come from libraries. I'm actually a chartered accountant by trade. Mm -hmm. uh, I came from local government experience, but I guess brought a very different lens. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the early part of my career, I was an auditor. So part of what I would do there is go out to a lot of businesses and um, understand how they work. And so I, when I started, I brought a different lens. And when, when people go and use a 24-7 gym, it was really just about asking, well, if gyms can do it, why can't we? Mm. So it wasn't so much that others were doing it in the library sector because they weren't. Um, mm. It was more around this is the way that we will be able to get more people through our doors at a time that suits them. So mm -hmm. rather than thinking about these are the costs that we have, this is how we can staff a library, um, there isn't a never-ending pot of money. So mm -hmm. you've got to be creative in how you adapt to, to the mm -hmm. service and how we can offer more with the existing resources that we have. Mm-hmm. Playing devil's advocate, and I'm sure you would have thought of this, is that, uh, you know, if I am a gym junkie, which I'm definitely not, but, uh, uh, you know, I have to go to the gym to get in my exercise. But if I love reading books, you know, I, I can go to the library and get books out and then be reading them at home. Uh, but you're saying this is for people who can't access a library during um, regular library hours. 
Yeah, wow. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. Correct. And I guess I use myself as an example. So prior to starting at the library, you know, I didn't have time to mm-hmm. go and access a library. My mum had three kids, mm-hmm. um, worked full time. So I posed the question to my team, well, when when are people like me going to get to go to yep. the library? Yep. And even if that's just to go and collect their mm-hmm. books. So, right. Interesting. Okay, well, let's uh, let's come back to all of that uh, because, uh, you know, I'm interested in you to touch briefly on, you know, a very small part of your background. But let's, uh, what I like to do is uh, let's go back to where it all began for Leanne and tell us a little bit about, you know, where you were born and mum and dad, brothers and sisters, and, and let's go from there. Yeah, great. So um, I grew up on a farm mm-hmm. um, in northeast Victoria, um, and I would say that a lot of my resilience comes from growing up on a farm. It's one of the things that a lot of farmers talk about is their resilience. And um, my parents split when I was sort of in, in primary school. So um, I have um, a younger brother, but I my dad's also remarried and I have three younger siblings. So okay. It's interesting that I have a younger sister who is mm-hmm. younger than my eldest son. Right. <laughs> so it makes for a really nice sort of, you know, relationship between sure. all the, and the, joy, the joys of modern families, huh? Yes. Uh, yep. and, um, and did your parents both stay on the land after they separated? My dad is still on the same farm. So, okay. um, and I think one of the factors I guess that have influenced who I am was my passion for horses okay. um, so my dad said as a farmer I'm never going to be allowed to have a horse because all horses do is turn good food into shit so <laughs> he, um, <laughs> he said that was um, not going to happen and so you know maybe my entrepreneurialism started quite early on there where I just turned up with a neighbor's horse and said surprise so um but my dad, you know, clearly didn't support it. And um, my mum was scared of horses. So um, I guess one of the stories I tell that kind of shaped who I am is um, my dad was always out for a bargain and he came home one day with a horse after the pup, my other horse had passed away and he said, um, okay, here's this horse. And it was close to not even being broken in. Right. Um, and he said, this is what you've got. So you either um, work with what you've got or you don't do it at all. And um, I had to spend significant amount of time. And, and by the way, I was only eight and I was mm-hmm. little for my age. And um, I had to drag a saddle that weighed more than me um, about 20, 50 metres to um, get it on the horse. And then I had to, took me ages. I couldn't even lift it. I had to like stand on a bucket and drag it up onto the back of the horse. And it was... Um, take me about two and a half hours and I would get on and the horse would buck me off within 10 seconds. So (laughs) then I would have to start again. And so I guess that there's a lot of um, correlation between, you know, when I look back on that particular experience and then how I, I guess I am as a leader Mm. um, and how I approach challenges within um, the organization and and my career. So. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, uh, my daughter uh, over the Christmas holidays had a week of horse riding lessons. Daddy, daddy, get me a pony. But uh, uh, I don't know that I would put it as eloquently as your father. But uh, <laughs> it's it's certainly not a small investment, is it? Okay, so uh, so you're on the land with um, dad, uh, 
but being bucked off horses. And uh, and so I suppose, you know, you, no doubt there's plenty of jobs for you to do around the farm and so on. When you were at, uh, at high school, you know, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, that's an interesting question because I think and having had this conversation recently with a few people, you know, what teenager really knows what they wanted to do. So, um, and as a parent, we can influence our kids on what we wanted to be. So my, um, my uncle was an accountant um, and my grandfather was a bank manager. And so they both, I guess, played quite an influence in saying, well, if, you should be an accountant. It's good pay and um, a good solid career path. And in lieu of not really knowing what else to do, um, uh, sort of thought, oh, well, I, I guess that's what I'll do. And right. um, so, yeah, I went off to uni in Canberra and, um, and yeah, did my accounting um, degree. And then um, in partway through, I decided to transfer universities on, on my way to try and move to Melbourne back from Canberra. Mm -hmm. um, but I got stuck at home halfway back in northeast Victoria and I ended up getting a job with an accounting firm as an auditor um, in Albury. So uh, that was when I was 21 and that was that really began my career as an mm -hmm. auditor and chartered accountant. So I worked there for seven years mm -hmm. um, before then jumping into local government because I guess there was the question posed to me um, about when you want to have a family, um, the auditing lifestyle is not particularly conducive to um, having a family. You're on the road travelling for a significant part of the year. So my um, now husband suggested that I try local government mm -hmm. uh, and uh and I had been auditing local government. So that really began, I guess, my passion for, um, for the sector and, um, and serving the community. Mm -hmm. So what is it about local government that uh, ignited that passion? Obviously, you just mentioned, you know, the service element. But um, uh, what, what has excited you and, and kept you in that sector for the balance of your career? I would, I would say probably the biggest thing is that no day is ever the same um, and the inquiries that come through are so varied, diverse, broad-ranging. Um, and when I jumped into local government, I went from being an auditor, I actually became an economic development officer mm -hmm. that allowed me to work with businesses and attract um, businesses to the Shire and, um, and then... I moved from economic development into risk and governance. But I guess along the way, I guess from a career progression perspective, I always had a goal of wanting to be finance manager. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the back of my head was also this um, uh, inherent feeling of leadership was something that felt very natural for me and mm -hmm. uh, ultimately wanting to be a CEO. So. Mm -hmm. Um, that's how I sort of began that journey. Okay. And, uh, and you know, I know you've always sort of uh, invested in ongoing education for yourself. And so as you've uh, moved into these different stages of your career, uh, how much of it was, oh, here's an opportunity, I'm just going to grab it and run with it versus, you know, a, a very considered uh, strategic plan in terms of, how you would move eventually towards that CEO role? 
That's a good question. And I would say um, prior to getting the CEO role, it was all very opportunistic. Mm-hmm. So it was, I like to say, life is not just the straight ladder, climbing up the ladder. It's an obstacle course. And it was very much in a regional area the opportunities don't come up as often. And Mm -hmm. so you've, again, got to think a little bit laterally about different opportunities when they arise. And I remember someone saying to me when I took on a risk and governance coordinator, they said, why would you want to do that? (laughs) And I knew in the back of my mind that there was, it actually connected all of um, skills that I'd learned early on in my career as an auditor that ultimately were transferable skills that would make for, I guess, really strong finance, governance and leadership um, in a CEO role. So, um, and I guess as an extrovert, I bring a very different flavour to that than, than others. And at what point did you start to get excited about libraries particularly? Well, um, I actually managed a transition in my previous role as as a finance manager and manager of corporate services. I um, managed a project for nine months um, that was the disbandment of a library corporation. So that Mm -hmm. gave me insights into libraries at that point. Um, unfortunately, I can't say, you know, my passion arose from having children and taking them to story time because I was the mum that was working full time and I went back to work very early. So, um, so my passion has grown. Um, I guess I love, I love the, um, challenge of seeing an organisation transform into, you know, the possibilities that it has and seeing that vision. So, um, and I guess learning is the essence of a library and I love learning. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of synergies there. Mm-hmm. And you started to talk uh, a little earlier about, you know, your mandate when you came in in your role, which you've now been in for over four years, I understand. So, um uh, the board gave you a particular mandate. Uh, So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so at this point in time, local government in Victoria had had rate capping introduced and so it was really going to change and, I guess, constrict the financial resources that were available within the sector. Mm -hmm. And we are owned by three councils and so if our organisation wasn't operating within the same constraints that the rest of... the the member councils were well then we were on a fast track for another disbandment um so my goal was to make sure that didn't happen and make sure that the organization could be financially sustainable Mm -hmm. within those constraints um and so early on the transformation was very much centered around financial controls uh budget and uh we did a lot of system changes to our finance and the way we process all of our corporate back-end systems. And, uh, but what's now sort of over the journey transpired is the transformation's grown into um, a, how we coach each other, how, um, what the culture of the organisation wants to progress to, how we can be an adaptable organisation so that we can anticipate 
um, the changes that are going to happen in the community and make sure that where they're ready when they're happening, not sort of trying to catch up years later, which is mm-hmm. what in some instances had been happening. So um, so for me, I guess that's something that really ignites um, and excites me is, is that transformational process where you um, lead it in an authentic um, way and then see um, the potential of all your people shine through that you might not have expected. Mm-hmm. So it was about being able to sustain the libraries financially uh, and also, I mean, leading it through a period of tremendous disruption. I mean, for, for like a lot of industries, right? You know, and certainly if I look at my own, I'm an avid reader. I would read at least two books a week. Um, I have not physically bought a book to hold in my hands uh, for years. You know, I, I read everything on my Kindle on my phone, right? And, uh, and so, I mean, you're dealing with all of that too. So, um, and dealing with, you know, younger people or not just younger people, but people coming through and saying, you know, why am I going to read a book when I can watch the latest series on Netflix? So much more competition for people's attention, uh, which is a global phenomenon coupled with, you know, within the book uh, environment, um, uh, digital consumption rather than physical consumption. Wow. Like, I mean, there's lots of moving parts there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the one of the things was we had to change the mindset of how we actually thought about our service. And it mm. was very much don't just sit back and think that people are going to keep coming to use our service because they always have for all of those reasons that you've yeah. just described, Richard. And so it's um, thinking about anticipating the needs that what they want to actually come for, or they're not going to want to come at all. And so mm-hmm. we we don't expect physical books to disappear entirely. Mm-hmm. We believe that after COVID, we've we may have sort of reached a pinnacle in terms of e-resources such as e-books and e-audio books um, at around 30% um, of our total use. Mm-hmm. Um, so and obviously we got to that point quicker because of COVID, but COVID really played to the strengths of the journey that we had already been on because we had already talked about an adaptable culture. We had already implemented systems that supported remote working Mm -hmm. and um, we had just completed rolling out our innovation framework to embed innovation across the whole organisation. And so it, um, whilst it had a detrimental effect to our patrons not being able to come and visit our service um, from how we think of our organisation and how we deliver our service. It very much um, was like, well, COVID is an example of why we have to change and of Mm -hmm. why we have to keep thinking about it in this particular way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you're... uh you're doing in isolation or uh, is there a lot of integration and communication across the sector in terms of you talking to your, you know, the other CEOs of libraries throughout Australia and and globally, um, or are you trying to do all this yourself? We are 
we we have a very strong relationship with the other CEOs across the sector. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so our peak body in Victoria, Public Libraries Victoria, um, of which I'm the vice president, they um, have been on a journey as a whole sector. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's very much everyone sharing in that knowledge, everyone working through that, that change. I guess what I would say is that different organisations are going at different speeds. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also different boards um, provide guidance in different mm -hmm. areas. And also the communities are different too. So the communities in a, in a city service are quite different to those in a regional service. So it's not always, you know, it is, it's horses for courses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the things that come in my mind, I mean, the, 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 the two examples which are given so regularly about organisations that, uh, did not adapt, one being Kodak. Kodak invented the digital camera, but they said, oh, we're not going to actually pursue this because we sell film. Uh, and uh, the other one being Blockbuster, which is obviously, you know, closer to you uh, in terms of uh, uh, going in and, and physically um, renting a DVD. So, I mean, you said we need to think about, but well, what are the changing requirements of our our clients, or you know? And so, what what was your, uh, you know, the Kodak moment? I believe, and I'm just is, is eventually I said, well, we're in the business of memories. Now that could be memory on a piece of film, it could be memory on a hard disk, it could be, you know. So, um, what what was your uh, Kodak moment in terms of thinking about? Well, how do we re envisage our, our, what we do? Great question. And some, I guess, traditionally, they would have said we're in the business of books, but we're not. We're in the business of people. And so we have to go where and, and do what our people want. And that includes being a library beyond the four walls of a physical space. There's certainly a place for that which brings people together to connect and um, to feel safe so we are a safe place in the community for everybody. Uh, we don't discriminate. So that's one of our um, big purposes. But learning, um, so I talked about our programs being one of our fastest growing um, services in our library and, and that's our, our program. So we range from early years programs. We do science set technology programs. We during COVID now, video all of our programs. We even um, have got videos on our website for um, our community with local recruiting agents to understand, you know, what the strengths is to, you know, for a job interview or for a, a resume, you know, HR in terms of um, mental health blog. And so we're very much going to be expanding in the space of, you um, community health and well-being and so how we support healthy communities mm -hmm. um and i like to say it's in in i guess it's about providing life skills life skills and knowledge mm -hmm. okay um so yeah so uh rather than just being a repository of uh of wisdom you're actually taking the wisdom to the people yeah i like it that's cool yeah. And, and, and the other thing, you know, from a personal point of view, you know, Leanne, uh, I say this with all due respect, you know, as, as somebody who um, was an auditor and, you know, an accountant and largely in the business of looking backwards, right? Okay. 
but now you're very much in the business of looking forwards. How, what needed to shift for you? How how was it that you think that you were able to, you know, I mean, uh, not just go from being an accountant to being a CEO, but being somebody who's, you know, really focused on strategic innovation, you know, and delivering a vision, not a normal accountant's headspace, right? Yeah, yep. So... <laughs> That's, that's a really interesting way. If I start from the finance perspective, um, what I loved about being an auditor was actually going out on site to visit different businesses and all the different businesses. And part of that was I loved talking to people. Mm -hmm. So um, I did do a very short stint as a tax accountant and I didn't last very long because it was so boring. But... Um, <laughs> But I then, in my finance manager role, two of the critical um, parts of the year was you prepare the annual financial reports, which are looking backwards, and you prepare the annual budget, which is looking forwards. Mm. And I think that it was in that um, transactional process that I very much prefer looking forwards. Mm -hmm. And I need to credit, I guess, where I am now to when I became CEO, I would say there was, I was probably looking forwards and backwards, you know, 50% of, you know, 50-50. Um, but along that way, my board at the time provided a lot of guidance. And I'm, I, there were some examples early on, we all make mistakes. And I, you know, you model leadership styles that you see and you observe and you learn and you adapt to make your own. And my board, early on provided me with guidance they provided me with feedback that maybe I didn't want to hear um and that I guess helped change my path and mm. um and my leadership style and then they have really invested in my professional development mm -hmm. and so them investing in my professional development I would certainly attribute um, quite a lot to how I am as a leader today and and um, and how I lead our organization mm -hmm. so I, I, I looked on your website and seen your board but unfortunately I can't actually see the background of the people on the board but it looks as though it's made up obviously of the the three councils that are your boss right um, uh, and so are, are these um, uh, people working within the council in executive roles or councillors or who are they? It's both. So each member council has a councillor and yep. also um, a senior um, director executive on right. the board. So you get both perspectives, which is mm -hmm. really valuable. Um, and, you know, they're all leaders within our mm -hmm. community. So they bring skills uh, as well as then you know understanding their community um, and they all have diverse skills so mm -hmm. um, so that in itself is an advantage and to be able to learn and grow from them is great. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because uh, as you know through uh, Champions Forum but more broadly you know I, I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of CEOs and a lot of CEOs of not-for-profits or government-owned corporations and so on I would say the bulk of them would be less than uh, complimentary about, you know, the uh, 
the capability of their boards. So uh, uh, particularly in relation to having that sort of strategic orientation and uh, creative uh, uh, orientation. So what do you think is unique or, I mean, of this interplay between CEO and board, you know, that dynamic is so important. Um, how has that worked so successfully for you? I love that question. I think it's because... I've had a significant turnover of the board in the four years that I've been there, but all of them, when they join our board, recognise, they see the vision of the organisation and they see the passion of me and our executive in what we're trying to achieve and the philosophy of, of why we exist. And mm -hmm. so um, they, I think the success is also... Um, an extension of, I guess, part of the mandate when I started was we can't keep doing what we've always done because that's not going to be good for the organisation or the community. And so we're very entrepreneurial as an organisation and I think that's very unique in a local government organisation. Mm -hmm. So we have now we're much more like a not-for-profit, an innovative not-for-profit, an adaptive one rather than... Um, uh, local government in the traditional sense. And I think that that is very interesting mm -hmm. um, to, to be part of and to um, observe and it's exciting. So I think all of those things align to bring the board together. And I think the other um, reason why the board works so well is the culture. So it's not just the culture of our organisation, our people, it's also the culture of our board. Mm -hmm. And in the words of my board chair is that our culture um, of our board has to be so strong that it sustains um, people coming and going and, um, and it has to espouse the values of our organisation. And, um, you know, we check our egos at the door and, and we have, you know, a great time. I lead in a very authentic manner and we bring our humour and, um, and, you know, try not to be, I guess, you know, sometimes it can be a bit stagnant, maybe is that the right word? Is that, you know, I think sometimes leaders can try to be doing all the right things, um, but in doing so you feel quite restricted. But I think there's um, huge benefit in owning your own style mm. and having, you know, everyone sees you for who you are and, that, and being genuine and therefore, you know, they jump on board. Mm -hmm. The board jumps on board. Well, that's good. Uh, are, they, uh, are they voluntarily taking on those roles or is it enforced upon them? Okay, as part of your broader responsibility, you've got to be on this board or do they get to, are they there because they want to be there? A um, bit of both. So they right. are forced to, you know, as part right. of the role. Um, and I think that has its challenges in that, I guess, traditionally sometimes if they're forced to be on there, it's about how engaged they want to be so one of the things that I've made sure I do is you know we're very respectful of their time and their um, skills and experience and so one of the things that helps me is that in doing so they're highly engaged mm -hmm. and I believe you know to have a highly engaged board is a huge benefit to our journey. Mm -hmm. And I imagine also the fact that you, in your own right, you're a graduate of AICD and you have been on and uh, remain on other boards. You know, that's, uh, tell us a little bit about that side of your career. 
Yeah, and I think it plays to the strengths of how you lead as a CEO. And I had someone say to me once that they won't sit on a board as a non-executive director if the CEO doesn't sit on other boards because the CEO um, can understand the director's perspective. Mm. And I, I thought that was really, really wise advice. And, yeah, I, um, I'm a non-executive director for a health service mm-hmm. um, in Gippsland and uh, I also sit on an independent school board um, as a not-for-profit. Um, and I, as I mentioned earlier, Vice President of Public Libraries Victoria. Mm. And I think during the course of my career, one of the things that I did do all the way through was sat on committees. It was a way to diversify my experience. It was a way to work with people that I wouldn't otherwise work with. And it was a way to lead and refine those leadership skills mm-hmm. um, in people more broadly that I wasn't necessarily getting in my employment. And that helped elevate my career faster Mm -hmm. um, and make steps in ways that others from the outside would be like, why is she doing that? Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, interesting things to unpack there. I mean, I I recruit board members for -for not-for-profits for free. Uh, Mm. That's my way of making a social contribution. I've been on four not-for-profit boards over my career and every single time at the end I go, Richard, never, ever, ever, ever join a not-for-profit board again. And then I get sucked in again. My best record is last year, I was asked to join the board of a, uh, uh, a not-for-profit in the domestic violence space. And uh, I didn't even make it to the first board meeting <laughs> before the CEO and I went, Richard, I don't, I, I don't think we're culturally aligned. I went, probably not. But um, uh, it's interesting that that person would make that comment. They won't be on a board unless the CEO is also on other boards. Hmm. Because again, you know, I recruit board members and CEOs regularly. Um, There are a lot of organisations that won't let their CEO be on another board because they feel it's a distraction. So um, uh, it's interesting you two completely sort of alternative philosophies here. Uh, I, whilst I probably agree with the person that said to you, made that comment to you, because I think it's exactly right. It is giving a CEO, you know, that perspective of what being a non-executive director is and, you know, the separation between strategy and execution. Um, but, uh, you know, different horses, different courses, right? Yeah, and I think that I guess it's a I guess it's taking a holistic view. So mm. obviously when I wanted to jump on some boards, I asked my board's permission, of which mm. they were supportive of that. But it was also about being selective. So I didn't just go and say to the board, I want to be on this board just because I can. It was mm. From my perspective, I was selective about what the boards were and why, and they were different. They're all different sectors, but they're all somewhat complementary to um, libraries and, and how we serve the community. And it also gives um, a different perspective into the communities with which I sit on those boards. But as an individual, as a leader, Um, being able to observe as a non-executive director and how different executives teams work and then see what works well and what doesn't work well and then take that back to my organisation, I guess, goes to my continuous improvement as a leader. So, um, and it's also my way of giving back. I'm not the parent at school selling sausages. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, sitting on the board because that is 
um, how I can give my skills to help support um, the community and, um, and, and be involved because otherwise it's somewhat um, challenging to allocate your time. Oh, definitely. Although I'm sure uh, you can cook a mean sausage as well, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. so, uh, I, my son's just started a new high school and I said to them, look, I can't coach the sports team, but I'm happy to cook the sausages. <laughs> uh, so what, what, you know, in terms of looking out to the future, then what do you, what do you see as uh, the future for West Gibson libraries? And what do you see as the future for Leanne? Oh, wow. That's a big question. So the future for West Gippsland libraries um is somewhat being defined by changes to legislation at the moment. So um, we have to change the type of entity that we are and we're looking to transition to a not-for-profit um, governance and entity structure. So that transition opens significant opportunities for our organisation and how we support our community. But I guess ultimately, whether it be for our organisation or for me personally, I love helping people. Mm -hmm. And if I help our organisation help help other people um, and build resilient communities. So we want to be able to provide the skills within the communities that helps create a healthy community. Uh, an example might be life skills, for example, you know, mm -hmm. if it's interviews for students when they're in year 10 and we we do interview panels for the for kids at school and they get practice and you know there's such a wide range of learning opportunities that we offer because we do it for free but how we go and partner with other organizations um, to provide that benefit to the community um, I think is is really important, but it's also about values. So, you know, my values align with the values of the organisation and and that's how I, I like to lead. And I guess in terms of me personally, um, you know, I like to feel challenged and, uh, and to be constantly learning and growing. Um, so I recently just started my graduate diploma in psychology, which I'm finding really interesting. It's very complimentary of being a CEO, by the way. Um, and and so it's con it's about constantly moving forward, right. uh, not feeling like you're going backwards or treading water. Mm -hmm. uh, often they say plumbers have the worst pipes. And uh, from a lot of people I know who go to university and study psychology, they look around the room and they go, mm, I think these people should be the patients. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, we'll leave that where it is. Uh, I mean, I, I, I coach senior executives through the, the job search and careers and so on. And if I look at you, you know, you, you could continue down the library path. You could move into a broader CEO role within uh, the um, local or, you know, government space, or you could, um, you know, uh, move into a commercial uh, career. What, what attracts you? What excites you? The transformation of an organisation mm -hmm. is what excites me. Mm -hmm. So with the underlying outcome being... A, 
adaptive and progressive engaged organizational culture mm-hmm. and that financial sustainability for the longer term and they are what that's what motivates me and drives me and so I think it's about when it's it's a long I guess a long vision not a short one yeah sure but could you see yourself for example you know, becoming a CEO of a council in the future? Is that something, I mean, you 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 were drawn to being a CEO, but you made that choice, you know, earlier in your career and we're making some career decisions to give you the, the skill set to do the job and give you the visibility to get the opportunities. Is that is that on the radar for the future or is it or is it something else? Well, I think over the course of one's career, when you're already in a CEO role, you have to ask yourself that question. And mm-hmm. I guess the leader that I am now is not probably what I expected four or five years ago. And so um, I now have a greater understanding of my strengths and what um, drives me coming back to that transformation piece, but very much from an innovation, adaptability, uh, moving fast. So I would say that it more plays towards where our organisation is going from a not-for-profit perspective Mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, from a local government perspective, it's um, the change is much slower and, um, and, and local governments, conservative organisations for, for good reason. And so it's, um, I I think it probably leans more in that, in that not-for-profit. Right. Space, yeah. Sure. Okay. Oh, that's uh, really, really interesting. And uh, I look forward to seeing how it all unfolds. So we've spoken a lot about your work and your career and so on. Tell us a little bit about Leanne when she's not at work. Uh, what what keeps the petrol tank full? And, uh, you know, what, what do you like to get up to? You're obviously married. You've got three kids. Do you still own a horse? No, I don't. And when you say, what do you do out of work? It keeps the petrol tank going. I'm thinking nothing out of work keeps it going. It just empties it. Right. So, uh, yeah, I've got I've got three kids, so they've just turned um, five, seven and nine. Right. Um, and so they keep me very busy. So I'm very deliberate on my weekends of um, taking downtime, quiet time, mm-hmm. um, I, we've built a new house and so I'm very much enjoying establishing gardens and seeing that grow. It's, I guess, a bit of a metaphor for growth. But right. um, I think the tranquility that, um, you know, the great outdoors provides. I spent a lot of my time as a kid on the horse out in the bush right. in the nowhere by myself. So it's, um, yeah, I, I enjoy family time and no doubt as the kids get that little bit older, I'll just be driving them around everywhere. <laughs> And uh, now that we're sort of hopefully seeing the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel in relation to COVID, you, you know, we can start to travel a little bit more. Where are you excited about travelling to? You know, have you got any anything? It's like, oh, I can't wait to, to go here. I haven't been able to go there or whatever. Yeah, it's. Um, I think certainly this would not be in the in the short term future. But um, yeah, we'd like to take the family to Japan on a holiday and. Okay. Um, Kids went to Thailand in 2019, so they they just I think the cultural experience they they just loved it. They talk about it, and mm. I think as a family, you know, we want to be able to do those things. But that's yeah. certainly a little while away now in a in a COVID world. So um, otherwise, we just head up to my dad's farm, sort of you know a few times a year. 
uh, so the kids get to have that experience of spending time with their aunties and uncles who they think are cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But also I think it's really important that our kids understand what the farm life is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I see my kids, you know, growing up in suburbia and, you know, it's one perspective, but I think the farming perspective has a lot to add to um, individuals and mm-hmm. um, how they see the world. Mm. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and I think that, you know, I, even my own childhood is being with the kids running around the neighbourhood and mum standing outside at six o'clock and ringing the bell, you know, which could be heard kilometres away. And you go, oh, it's time to go home for dinner. But, I mean, now kids are just, you know, you, parents are just so fearful of their kids um uh leaving you know the front yard and uh so to get out on a farm and actually you know get some dirt between your toes and uh uh, and explore um i imagine uh, your kids must love it yeah yeah absolutely it it's um you know they went on a night bushwalk you know with the youngest only being four at the time like five kids heading off into the bush and by the time they were gone an hour in the dark I was like oh I don't know (laughs) but it's about you know you gotta let go it's it's no how I parent and how I lead the organization I try to empower my kids just the same Mm. as I try to empower the staff in my organization and I've got to let them learn for themselves I've got to let them fail they're going to fail and whilst we want to jump in and save them that's not going to set them up in the future so trying to as any parent does juggle that fine line Mm. between when to step in and when to not um and and i walk that line at work too um is um but ultimately it's wanting to empower them so Mm. that's excellent Great. And Leanne, uh, just uh, from my side of things, just to wrap things up, uh, you've been uh, part of Champions Forum now for about six months and, uh, you know, I'd be really interested in you uh, just sharing your thoughts and experiences uh, in case other people are thinking that it's something they might want to do. Yeah, I've been really enjoying my time at Champions Forum. It's wonderful to meet such a diverse group of people and I think Richard you bringing um, bringing a diverse group of people together has really helped um, my learning and growth but I think back when my I, I came along for the first time we were in you know you're up in Brisbane we were down in Victoria in lockdown and mm. um, I found it fascinating listening to the perspectives of the Queenslanders and the Victorians at the same time so it was about not seeing a physical um, get together. It was seeing the opportunities that can come from a virtual group coming together where we don't have to be confined to the, the physical location. And I think mm-hmm. that how you've been able to bring people together from across the country um, means that we all benefit as individuals to learn from each other so so yeah i've i've really enjoyed learning um about everyone's experiences and their diverse backgrounds and sectors they work in so yeah i love it oh that's good leanne i'd, I'd love to think that perhaps uh, at some point in the future you might want to facilitate one or two because i <laughs> I, I think you'd do an awesome job uh i mean you talk about queensland and melbourne and lockdown experiences so but don't forget we're in lockdown for three days not that long ago <laughs> Three days compared to like three months. <laughs> it, was, it was tough though because two of the days were on the weekend. Oh, 
dear. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've got no sympathy for you. <laughs> None. So, Leanne, before uh, we wrap it up, is there anything else you wanted to, you know, share? Is there any particular wisdom you'd share to people who aspire to becoming a CEO? Uh, uh, any final words of wisdom? Yeah, I have a couple of mantras. One mantra that I've always lived by is, you know, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but it's short-term pain, long-term gain. So, mm -hmm. um, and don't do the journey alone. So particularly from a women's leadership perspective, you know, have people around you that are going to help you, that are going to help lift you up, not tear you down. And I think that um, don't try and do it alone, but you can do it. So often people tell themselves that they can't do it, so why bother trying? And whereas mm. I take the view that anybody can do it, it's a choice that you make. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, make the choice and then um support surround yourself with people that will support you so mm. don't be afraid to reach out to others even to strangers um and uh, and you know ask for ask for help so um yeah be surprised people will say yes absolutely i couldn't agree with you more i think uh women tend to be far tougher on themselves than men and they judge themselves a lot more uh harshly uh and as a result don't put themselves out to, to take opportunities. So uh, I remember I was at a gender diversity debate a few years ago and uh, there was about a hundred and odd women and about five guys. And uh, these women were up in arms, you know, we've been denied opportunities and we're men. And, and uh, I went back and I looked um, in the prior month, we'd recruited four C-suite roles, three of which were in not-for-profits. 800 unique applicants across the four roles. Only 7% of the applicants were women. Mm. And yet in every instance, the employer had said, we would strongly like to have a female CEO. Um, and I would say 19 out of 20 assignments that I pick up, uh, senior executive assignments, the employer says, we definitely want greater gender diversity. Uh, mm. We actively you know, want you to pursue um, female candidates for these roles. And so a lot of that historical uh, angst about glass ceilings and being denied opportunities, it's not real. It, yeah. it, 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 um, so you're exactly right. You know, people want to support you. People want to give you that assistance to step up in your career. You're just going to ask. Um, yeah. And uh, the more we can do to encourage that, and not just women, but, you know, uh, all diversity, mm. age, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, uh, disability, whatever, you know, um, this is the world we're in now. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people need to move beyond these self-imposed uh, limiting beliefs um, if they want to achieve their full potential. Yeah, yep, yeah, I agree. Mm. Well, Leanne, excellent chatting to you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you on Champions uh, in a few weeks' time. And in the meantime, have a fantastic afternoon and weekend. Yeah, thanks very much, Bridget. It's been great to chat. All right, good on you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. 
While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.